You know when you order a new video game, or a golf club, or a blender, and then it arrives at your door. You get a little thrill. Imagine how much more thrilling it is when you order a new car. With Nissan at home, you can shop for the perfect ride and order it without ever having to go anywhere. Sure beats a golf club or a blender. Buy a new car entirely online with Nissan at home. Deliver direct from dealer to driveway. Thrill starts here. Services may vary at participating dealers subject to applicable lossy dealer for details. Hi, I'm John Bearer, the host and lead researcher for Stories of Sacrifice, American POW-MIA podcast, and the U.S. POW-MIA family locating. A free forensic genealogy public service I provide to support POW-MIA families trying to get their loved one identified and brought home. First, I want to thank you, our listeners, for your interest in the Stories of Sacrifice podcast. Our goal with the podcast is to tell the world about the sacrifice these brave heroes gave for the freedoms we enjoy every day. They gave our country their last full measure. They give us their tomorrow for our freedom today. Second, we would like to raise public awareness that thousands of these heroes from World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and the Cold War have still not yet been found or returned to the United States, with many still buried as unknowns in our own national cemeteries, their families still waiting for our government to disinter and identify them. So what can you do to support this important mission? First, if you are a relative of a missing in action service member, you can visit the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency website for more information about providing a family reference DNA sample. If you want more information, you can also contact me at john at uspowmiafamilylocating.com. Even if you're not related to an MIA, you can contact your members of Congress to request they allocate enough funding to support the POW MIA mission and to change the DPAA policy to a DNA lead process and create additional public partnerships to disinter and process the remains for those that are buried as unknown. You can also help us in our mission by sharing these podcast stories with your friends, family, and consider sharing them on your own social media. We would also appreciate if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit www.storiesofsacrifice.org and leave us a review there. You can visit our affiliate links on our website where we will earn a small commission on your purchases and no extra cost to you. If you feel moved to do so, please visit our donation links on our website to help us continue this important mission. Just sharing these stories helps us greatly and we cannot thank you enough for listening. Sit back and relax and we hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, World War II, American POW-MIA's podcast. The voice of the missing in action and the voice of those buried as unknowns in our national cemeteries. I'm your host and lead researcher, John Bearer. Over 75,000 service members are still listed as missing in action from World War II. Of those, over 30,000 are currently listed as active pursuit by the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency. 
Active pursuit, meaning they could possibly be identified with the proper family reference sample DNA being on file with the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. The process of donating DNA reference material is easy, painless, and free of charge. If you are the relative of a missing service member, you can contact the service casualty office of the MIA for information on how to provide a DNA sample. The service casualty office will mail mail to your home a DNA donor kit that contains a donor consent form, instruction form, three cheek swabs, and a shipping envelope. All you have to do is fill out the paperwork, rub the inside of your cheek with the swabs, place the swabs back into the containers, and affix the label. The collected samples are then placed in a pre-addressed and prepaid envelope and then mailed to the Armed Forces DNA Identification Lab at Dover. That's it. It's a completely painless process. To get more information about your missing in action relative, you can visit our website, uspowmiafamilylocating.com. And we can help you to determine if your relative is currently listed on the DPAA active pursuit list and the next steps to help get them identified. Just visit our website or email john at uspowmiafamilylocating.com. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm here with uh, Mark Kelsall. Uh, Mark is the grandson of Lieutenant Walter A. Kelsall Jr., who was a uh, uh, served in the military in the Philippines during World War II, and uh, welcome to the show, Mark. You want to tell us a little more about your grandfather? Uh, hello, John, and uh, my grandfather was Lieutenant Walter Arthur Kelso Jr. Uh, was born here in Galveston, uh, November 27, 1917. Attended Culver Military Academy, was in the Black Horse Troop, and uh, Tulane University in New Orleans. And after leaving Tulane, uh, took a reserve commission in the cavalry. And came home, uh, buried my grandmother. All of a sudden, got a, a letter from the United States Army that saying you owe us a year. And this uh, took place in June of forty-one. Well, my dad was born June 26, nineteen forty-one. Uh, Fourteen days later, my grandfather boarded a train. So my dad was two weeks old when he left. Boarded a train for uh, Albuquerque Army Airfield, and uh, was assigned to the nineteenth Bomb Group, ninety-third Bombardment Squadron uh, there at Albuquerque, and uh, they spent. To, from July to September of 1941, training in Albuquerque. Uh, my grandmother actually did go out there and join him for about a month uh, with my dad. And uh, it was there that my dad got his nickname from all my grandfather's squadron buddies. Uh, my dad's nickname was Butch because he was such a big baby. Uh, he was given that name by um, uh, several of the men from the 19th Bomb Group, and that name stuck with him uh, throughout his life. And he, he passed away about a year and a half ago. But um, in October of 1941, uh, the 19th Bomb Group was ordered uh, to the Philippines, uh, departed San Francisco uh, aboard the USAT Willard Holbrook on October 4th, and arrived in the Philippines uh, sometime around uh, October 23rd. And uh, he was assigned to Clark Field, uh, 19th Bomb Group, 93rd Squadron. And I uh, got several letters from there you know, detailing the day-to-day life at Clark Field. Uh, they, yeah, it was, uh, everybody was up at 5.30 in the morning, and the work was done by noon because it got too hot. So um, on December 2nd, uh, five days before Pearl Harbor, uh, for some reason, he got transferred to the headquarters squadron. And, uh, of course, you know what happened to Clark. Clark got bombed, and and they were ordered to uh, retreat to Batan. And you know, the first reading we have of him after 
that bombing was a telegram he sent from Manila on the 22nd of December saying, safe and well, Merry Christmas. You could tell it was sent in a hurry, and uh, they were on the run. But at some point, uh, when they were on Bataan, uh, the headquarters squadron was ordered down to Mindanao. And an inter-island steamer called the Mayon uh, picked up the, the men that were uh, ordered to Mindanao and uh, were taken down. Of course, you know, the, the, the Mayon was attacked on the way down there, but uh, managed to make it all the way down to Bugo, Mindanao, uh, where the men of the 19th Bomb Group that went down there were assigned to the Del Monte uh, Pineapple Plantation Airfield. And this is where uh, he served until uh, he was ordered uh, to surrender in, in May of 1942. And uh, the first camp that they were sent to was at a place called Malai Balai in Bukandam. And uh, the you know, the reports I read about that campus is pretty good. You know, the Japanese let them keep their foot lockers and they had typewriters here. In fact, I have a receipt that was sent to me by a man named uh, Sergeant Mike Biden, Bibbin, that my grandfather signed two weeks after the surrender there at Malai Balai. I still have it. He sent it to me uh, back, in, back in 2003. He found it amongst his things when I started when I was doing my research. So they stayed there until November of 1942, uh, where they were. Uh, sent down to Davao Penal Colony. And this, this was going to be home for about two years. And upon arrival at uh, Davao Penal Colony, next reading I have him was uh, the Japanese interpreter, whose name was Nishimura, uh, pulled him out of the line because he was the biggest man in the line. My grandfather was 6'5", so he's a pretty big guy. And uh, Nishimura had his horse whip and, and hit him across the face with a horse whip. And of course, you know, this guy was... Uh, known amongst the prisoners as Simon Legree. At, at Devout Penal Colony, he was in Barracks A1, which was next to the kitchen. And uh, from the men I've talked to that knew him there at Devout, he had two jobs. He, he worked in the rice fields quite often, uh, but he uh, also worked on something called a telephone detail. Uh, apparently, there was a telephone system there at Devout or an intercom system. And, uh, and another prisoner, uh, Maynard Booth, said they worked in chicken coops together. So, uh, pretty interesting. But, uh, the one story uh, about his time at Deval Penal Colony, which was sent to me uh, in a letter by a man named Roy Russell, who was a Shinyo Maru survivor, uh, who was his bay mate there at Deval Penal Colony. One Sunday morning, he came in and, and saw my grandfather cooking uh, a pot of stew. Well, there was, there was no meat there at Deval Penal Colony. And, um, and Roy asked my grandfather, he said, well, you know, where'd you get the meat? And uh, my grandfather, he said, your grandfather looked up at me with a, a half a smile and he said, Okubo's dog. Apparently, <laughs> Sergeant Okubo was one of the one of the prisoner war guards at Deval Penal Colony who had this dog. Well, apparently a dog had wandered into the camp the night before. And uh, I guess my grandfather was using the latrine and caught this dog and well, ended up being the Sunday dinner. So <laughs> A little payback. Yeah, a little payback from Sergeant Okubo. Well, Sergeant Okubo, I looked him up. He apparently was apprehended as a war criminal um, and held at Sugamo for a little while. I don't have his file yet. You know, the archives are shut down because of COVID. Well, the next reading we have of him was the Japanese decided to go ahead and close the Valpino colony in June of 1944. And uh, they shipped the, well, the first group, you know, left on the, sh to, to go to the Sang and build a runway for the Japanese. This was the group that ended up uh, on the Shinyo Maru. Well, the, the other group that stayed at Davao and didn't go to Lasang ended up uh, leaving on the Yashu Maru 
um, in, on June 25th, 1944. They stopped in Cebu. Uh, we're held at Fort Santiago for, uh, I think it's Fort San Pedro. I think it's, I can't remember the name, but uh, they were held there for a couple of days. And then another ship came in, uh, the Guiana Maru. There's some, you know, there's some, uh, um, I guess you could say, debate on what the name of this ship was, but I got, I got the name from a diary of a Lieutenant Earl Halsey who was on that ship with my grandfather. And interesting or not, you know, Lieutenant Halsey and my grandfather knew each other before the war because uh, their fathers were in business together. So, yeah, Halsey was a P-40 pilot. Anyway, they they uh, they went back to Luzon and, and uh, were, were put in Billabit Prison. Well, half of the group that was aboard the, the Guiana Maru went on the Canadian Venter to Japan, and the other half went to Cabana tomorrow. This was... Uh, Mid July 1944, and the next the next reading I have of him is a postcard that was sent from Cabana Tuan in July of 44. So after the war, uh, Lieutenant Ken Wheeler, who eventually became Vice Admiral Ken Wheeler, who was also in the Oreo Peru, but was in the same barracks as my grandfather when they arrived at Cabana Tuan, um, made a statement that uh, a certain guard named Kazutani Ayahara, which the, the prisoners called Air Raid, yeah, Air Raid, decided he was going to do his thing with, with several prisoners. And one of them was my grandfather took a pretty severe beating from him. So, uh, well, then they roll on to around October, mid-October. I think October 17th was the day I tracked down his movement from Cabana Tuan back to Bilibid for uh, shipment to Japan. And they stayed there at Bilibid for two months because the air raids and the and all that kind of good stuff. Well, the, a typhoon or something that come through that part of the world and the Oreo Kamaru uh, got orders to go ahead and berth on sometime between December 5th and December 10th. And she came in and uh, loaded cargo. And that and uh, orders came on December 12th for the 1,621 men to, to move out the next morning. And uh, board the Oreo Kamaru. And, um, you know, they called morning Tenko the next day and, and probably about 11 o'clock. Uh, the columns started marching out of Billabit Prison, uh, 1,621 men uh, in columns of four, led by Colonel Curtis Beecher, and marched down to Pier 7 from, from Billabit Prison through the streets of Manila. Yeah, let me interrupt you here real quick. Go ahead, sure. Mm-hmm. And by, this time, by, by this time that they're, they're getting ready to enter or board the, the hell ships is how they right. refer to them. Um, what, what was their condition like? Their, their health? Oh, they'd been prisoners for two and a half years. Dysentery was rampant. They, uh, they'd been on a reduced diet. Um, I, I don't know how this got out, but my grandfather was able to uh, send a postcard that said he was down to 180 pounds. And for a guy that had a six foot five, uh, football player frame you know, down to 180 pounds, that was uh, pretty significant. Our listeners knew about mm-hmm. kind of condition they were in by this point because of yeah they were they were in pretty bad shape this like i said you know, the diseases and the, the diet was was pretty horrible um by this time it wasn't too long before the the rangers you know before we actually landed back on the Philippines. yeah uh two weeks two weeks later the sixth army landed in Lingay. exactly and that's not long after kabata Klon was liberated right right in fact, I think Walter Kruger's, they invaded January 6th is the one that one guy in Landings took. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I'm getting to the, I'll get to that story later, but that same beach that uh, the Oreo Maru survivors boarded the second hell ship on uh, December 26th was the same beach that 
Yeah, there he is. That's his uh, Tulane University football picture. He, again, was about six five. He wore a size fourteen shoe. Holy cow! He was, he was a big. He was a big guy. And uh, you know, show that picture next to next to his horse at Culver Military Academy. That's him at eighteen years old. Uh, that's him uh, right before he left. There's a, a picture right over there with the horse. You can actually see how big how big he was. And, uh, yeah. That's a pretty tall thoroughbred horse right there. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, the, the Culver Military Black Horse Troop, those those horses aren't, you know, little. Yeah. Yeah, sorry for interrupting you there. Oh, no, 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 that's okay. No, absolutely jump in any time. I get to talking and I get to <laughs> not uh, not paying attention to the background. But anyway, oh. the, uh, the prisoners started boarding the Arctic Maru about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Of course, it was hot and and uh, they were actually down in the, the deep holds of the ship. You know, the Oreo from Rue was what we call a tween decker. There was a kind of mid deck between the, the main deck and, and the cargo hold. So the prisoners were down in the cargo hold. So it was, it was down in the bowels of the ship. And um, I don't know who made the loading plan, but uh, they, uh, they, they had the, they had the ship loaded uh, pretty, pretty awkward. Now I know they wanted to trim the ship down to the stern, so they put most of the prisoners, about 800 out of the out of the 1600, in the rear hold, and the rear hold was one of the smaller holds. And I think they had uh, another 600 and something in the forward hold, and and the, the middle hold right in front of the wheelhouse, uh, about 280, which was one of the men I talked to uh, was in that hold and said it wasn't that uncomfortable. But of course, the rear hold and the forward hold were uh, were the nightmares. They uh, they were overcrowded. The men. You know, they were bouncing off each other. Fights were breaking out. You know, they were they were going crazy from you know, dehydration and exposure. And uh, I've heard estimates that you know that first night after the ship got underway, it actually stopped off a of corregidor uh, to take on coal before it got underway to uh, Formosa. And uh, that night was just absolutely a nightmare. Uh, they estimate that uh, over over thirty prisoners either suffocated or uh, were murdered. There were actually some murders going on because the men were going stark breaking crazy, crazy with the uh, with the heat and, then, and the, the the conditions. It was it was just not very uh, not a very good place to be. No, in fact, the Japanese weren't letting them out of the holes of the ship to death no. like that. So no, they were- nothing. They nothing. Honey buckets and it was it was just not pretty. Uh, and, um, I guess. Fine. Sorry. Go ahead, John. And most, and most of these men at this time were all, uh, you know, had dysentery and malaria. Oh yeah, yeah. Dysentery, you know, you can, and, imagine, you can imagine that. Look at dog kennel. Oh <laughs> yeah, the diarrhea, the whole, yeah. you know, the whole works. And I, I couldn't right. imagine what the condition they were in in that hole with no ventilation, oh, yeah. the heat, and yeah, uh, it's it's unmanageable. You know, or manageable, right. or ma- imaginable. Right. <laughs> oh. And a good friend of mine, uh, Professor Jim Erickson, whose father was in the forward hold, uh, got a hold of the bill of a transfer roster, which had all the was the transfer orders for the men to go on the Orioka Maru, and was able to pretty much determine with uh, pretty darn accuracy uh, where all the men in on the roster were in in the hold, uh, based on their position in the line to march, and and, the, uh, and he's been pretty spot on. You know, the, the men I've talked to. Uh, all confirmed that they were in, in, in this hold or that hold. And uh, my grandfather was in that rear hold. He was in that hold with the, uh, the, the large amount. Well, anyway, the, like I said, the Oreo crew got underway that afternoon and uh, anchored off a of Corregidor and took on bunkers that night. 
Well, the next morning she got underway about five, six thirty in the morning and started making a run up the coast of Bataan. Well, the US Navy had the had the Philippines pretty much blockaded and were running aerial reconnaissance uh, from the aircraft carriers. You know, the Hancock was there, the Hornet was there, uh, Task Force, I think it was Task Force 38 uh, was you know flying constant air patrol and strike missions uh, since before the Lady Invasion since September. Well, you know, a ship the size of the Oreo Ruin in clear weather starts making a run up the, the Bataan coast. Uh, it's going to get spotted, and sure enough, it did. And I've got that picture here, if I can share my screen. She uh, she was spotted that morning, early morning, off the coast of uh, Bataan. And I went ahead and uh, zoomed in, and here's the first picture of the Oriokum Maru off the coast, uh, the western coast of Bataan. Uh, she's got... Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bone in her teeth. She's, she's moving fast. Probably uh, yeah, 15, 20 knots. Trying to, trying to make some headway. And this is from the Navy first spotted her. Well, of course, the, the Navy guys get on the radio. And uh, they, uh, they decided to, to give her a party. And um, on the picture. And they attacked the Oreo Camaro several times throughout the day. In fact, here's one of the first strike photographs. This is uh, this is uh, at the mouth of Subic Bay. Let me zoom out a little bit. Uh, at Sueste Point. In fact, that I was able to identify where the ship was based on this rock formation. This picture was taken about 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, during the attacks, the the captain stated that the the rudder in the stern tube was damaged. So he had to beach to keep the ship from sinking. He had to beach the Urukamaru there at the at the mouth of Subic Bay. And another pretty good shot of her. Yeah, what 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 happened back then is what um, the Japanese on these hell ships they didn't mark them with the Red Cross or or let wow. you know, or or advertise them that they were even uh, transporting POWs and and right. so our own forces were attacking these ships sure. cargo, you know and. Uh, the, the Geneva Convention called uh, for ships carrying prisoners to have a green cross. Exactly. Um, and, and this is one of the things that really stinks about this is that uh, Lieutenant Junzaburo Toshino, who was the Japanese uh, guard commander, the, the person in charge of the of the escort of the troops, claims he put a green cross on the deck of the ship, which was totally untrue. Yeah, well, these but, pictures tell the truth. Right, exactly. The pictures are real clear. In fact, this is a... Uh, this is one of the best shots of the Oregon Rue. This is uh, mid morning uh, on on the fourteenth. The front hat the front hatch cover is open in this picture. Uh, I 
but the rear is, is closed. And I noticed there's a there's a lifeboat in the water there. There's a it's off the davit into the water. I guess the the captain had asked the. And this is only a hypothesis, but I guess the captain had asked the crew to go check out the damage to the stern of the ship because that's where, where most of the damage was done to the rudder. So that was on the 14th. And um, during the, of course, you know, the night of the 14th was a repeat of the night of the 13th in the holds. It was, it was horrible. Uh, like I said, murders and, and uh, fights and, and just all kind of mayhem going on. Um, the, the man who was in charge of the rear hold, uh, Commander Warner Ports, uh, just uh, he 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 uh, kind of kind of just wore out. So uh, Commander Francis Bridget actually took over in the rear hold uh, of the ship and uh, tried to try to get some order there. In fact, uh, his his exploits on the York Maru uh, are, are legendary. In fact, they named a destroyer after him in the sixties. You know, the USS Bridget. Yep. Uh, the middle hold, and this is another interesting thing, the midship hold uh, was uh, under the command of a man named uh, Colonel Harold K. Johnson, who eventually became the chief staff of the Army in the 1960s. Uh, and, of course, the forward hold was was in commanded by uh, Colonel Curtis Beecher, who was also the commander at uh, Cabanatuan. Well, during the night, uh, the Orioka Maru was obviously damaged. It could not uh, move under its own power because of the, the rudder problems. So the Japanese uh, brought some tugs from the Subic Bay Navy base and towed the Orioka Maru during the night uh, into the inner harbor, about 300 yards off of the uh, lava pier. Well, you know, the, the U.S. Navy found the ship again, and the next morning decided they were going to uh, give them a party again. So... This is where uh, the Oriole Karu actually met met its match. Let me find my find my, my wares here. Sorry about the delay. So the Navy uh, attacked the ship, and uh, the first, in fact, one of the uh, one of the famous photographs, uh, one of the first attacks. Uh, this this is not a real widely seen photograph, but uh, you can actually see the the the. The large amount of smoke. This is this is really real close to the to the actual attack of oh, yeah. the Hurricane And you can see, you know, here the you know, Riviera Point here at Subic Bay. Uh, now the Alava Pier. If you, you see a modern picture of Subic Bay, the Alava Pier is right here where the aircraft carriers used to, to dock. Here's a close up of the one I just showed you, and you can see the ship pretty well, and uh, the superstructure of the ship, and you know the, the damage where the Navy had uh, that had a direct. Uh, 500-pound bomb hit directly uh, into the rear hold, killing about 235 to 250 American prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, you know, the, the famous the famous photograph, the splash photograph, which is, is the one everybody makes reference to. Just a little later picture, you know, the, the fire is, has gone out a little bit, and you can actually see the, the superstructure of the, of the ship a little better, and uh, and these splashes in the water, uh, a lot of the you know, people I know coming claim that those uh, are the prisoners. And I would agree because you've got a bunch of men leaving the rear hold and a bunch of people leaving the forward hold. Uh, so. yeah, did, didn't the Japanese at this time also shoot at those guys? That were yes, they did. Yes, yeah. they did. In fact, the Japanese uh, naval landing force had set up machine guns at the Subic Bay Seawall. And if anybody got out of the, the zone, uh, you 
got machine gun. In fact, I, I think they just fired the machine guns because they felt like it, there were several people that were killed in the water. Uh, Captain Ted Parker. Um, but there were two escapes from the area, three escapes, actually. There was a, a private Darnell Catoff, uh, Lieutenant George Petrich, and then there was a British uh, um, sergeant who we discovered, Jim Erickson actually discovered uh, a few years ago, had escaped from the Oreo from Rome and uh, hit out with a, a Filipino family, but unfortunately he uh, he died. Oh. So, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom that there were two men that escaped, there were actually three. So, but uh, the Navy kept coming back and uh, and attacking the Oreo from Rome throughout the day, uh, even after the prisoners were off. In fact, here's the the last um, last picture of the Oreo from Rome. Before she sunk, and there it is. I mean, she's completely engulfed in flames. This is about uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, you know, again, the ship is is going down, and, and the superstructure is on fire, and, and she was pretty much under underwater by uh, five o'clock that afternoon. Yeah. Well, the Japanese then put the men in. They carted them into a tennis court uh, there at the old Subic Bay Navy base, and I've got some. Took a while to try to figure that out because a lot of the, the prisoners didn't exactly know where it was. You know, they made references to it being you know, by the Spanish Gate or other places. But uh, Chad Hill, I don't know if you know Chad, and, and I debated on where the tennis court was, and we combed over these photographs, and we actually located it. Uh, it was uh, pretty much adjacent to the end of the Subic Bay Seawall, and you can you can actually see this enclosed picture. And I'll bring up the splash photograph. And uh, highlight where where it is. It's it's right right around here. Okay. So yeah. So there's the ship on fire, and, and the tennis court is right around on the edge of this grove of trees. Let me find a better picture for you. Hey, there you go. You can see it better there. Let me zoom in. But yeah, this is the splash photograph, and you can see the the, the tennis court clearly you know, enclosed um, a little bit south and a little bit east of of the ship. Yeah, here's Civic Bay. Here's the end of the seawall. So, but the men were were held there for uh, six days. Uh, the, the December thirteenth. In fact, uh, here's the here's the five o'clock picture. Um, you went ahead and zoomed in on the tennis court, and you can't see the you can't see the chalk lines anymore. So the the men are actually on the tennis court here. Uh, zooming in, you, you really uh, you can't see the men individually. But you can see that the, the tennis court's chalk lines are obscured by something. So the Japanese had moved the men or started putting the men on the tennis court uh, by the time this picture was taken. And I think there were around 1,344 men still alive. And they stayed there for uh, five days. And between 8 and 14 men are Rumored to have passed away on the tennis court. The conventional wisdom by the commanders is that there were eight, and uh, I can I can find between eight and ten possibles, uh, and they were buried about forty yards, according to reports, buried about forty yards south of uh, the tennis court, uh, towards the Civic Bay Seawall. So that's uh, that's pretty much what happened on the tennis court. And in fact, there's a uh, one of the, the, the IDPS that is kind of the central file uh, for the tennis court. And then, of course, the next phase, the San Fernando phase, is uh, Lieutenant William Hogaboom. Uh, he's, he was one of the poor souls that was wounded on the Oriole Canary that ended up being buried outside the tennis court. And uh, 
I've spoken to his family and they're, they're still looking for him. And his IDPF is a wealth of information because apparently uh, that's where they decided to you know, deposit all the investigation files for, for the tennis court. It's, it's, it's a Rosetta Stone for what happened. Um, well, from the tennis court, um, the Japanese sent word on a destroyer. In fact, I got the Japanese soldier's name. They sent the Toshino sent a runner uh, back on a Japanese destroyer from Civic Bay back to Manila to let them know what happened. And uh, they reported to General Quo's headquarters uh, that the Yori Kamaru had been sunk and that Lieutenant Toshino had uh, 1,344 American prisoners, some in pretty serious shape. Uh, contoned in on this tennis court at the Civic Bay Navy Base. And uh, the next day, a, a group of trucks that were sent out under Lieutenant Kempai Yuki uh, arrived at, at Olongapo and uh, started to uh, do what they could for the men there. The, they got uniforms and some cauldrons and some rice. And so the decision was made to continue with the journey. And um, a group of trucks arrived from Bilibin, and the first group of prisoners left Alongapo from the tennis court uh, for San, San Fernando Pampanga in uh, Mid Luzon. And this first group of prisoners were uh, quartered at the uh, provincial jail, which is uh, directly behind the provincial capital. And um, that first night, uh, again, about half the prisoners were, were put there. And then the next day, uh, the trucks came and picked up the rest of them about noon and on 21st and, and took the rest and they quartered them in a theater slash cockfighting pit uh, there right on the Pampanga River across from uh, the provincial capital. Well, this is this is where uh, it starts getting um, interesting is uh, you know, several of the men were not in really good shape after the Oriokan Rue bombing and, and the, the conditions aboard the ship. So men, uh, some of the men died. In fact, uh, the first two, um, the first two uh, men that, that passed away in the provincial jail were uh, Lieutenant Commander John Liddick and uh, Colonel Harry Harper. Uh, they passed away uh, the, the morning of the 21st. And this is where uh, the logistics of the, of the whole San Fernando incident start to take place. Um, the Japanese decided that they were going to bury um, these two men. And they found a cemetery on the, the outskirts of town, again, south of the Pampanga River, called the Campo Santo de San Fernando. And uh, this cemetery ends up, is going to end up being the scene for probably one of the most treacherous war crimes um, that were committed during this time. So the Japanese took these two bodies in and uh, buried them in a grave. And over the next uh, two days, another four men died, including uh, Lieutenant Eugene Specht, who, whose arm was amputated on a tennis court. A lot of people thought that uh, Specht had died on the tennis court, and you know, some of the diaries and statements indicate it did. But uh, there's one deposition uh, from Colonel Jack Swartz that uh, stated that Specht died in the, in, the, in the theater, in the cockpit, and his body was actually found in, in one of those graves in San Fernando. So, well... Four men died uh, between the 21st and, and 23rd, and uh, the Japanese made the second trip to the cemetery and, and dug another grave and, and buried the, the other four men. I've got a spreadsheet which details that. Well, that evening, um, a, uh, two, an officer and a, uh, and a uh, medical master sergeant came down from uh, Manila, 
Uh, they were ordered down there by General Quo, and the man's name is Lieutenant Urabi. And if you look at some of the uh, postcards that were sent out of the Philippines, you know, the prisoner of war postcards, a lot of them, Urabi was the censor. He was the, the Japanese censor. Yep. So uh, General Quo dispatched Urabi and Lieutenant Yuki to the San Fernando uh, to assist Toshino in, in getting the men to the second ship, which ended up being the Inamaru at, at, uh, at the Lingayan Gulf. Um, they brought with him a man named uh, Master Sergeant uh, Sukatoshi Tanoi. Well, that night of the 23rd, before the move, uh, Toshino uh, and Urabi had a conference, and it was decided that Lieutenant Urabi told Toshino that the sick, sick and wounded prisoners the sickest and the most wounded prisoners would not be able to make the journey that they needed to be executed. So uh, Toshina called his interpreter, Shisuke Wada, to uh, his office and, and told him to instruct the American doctors who ended up being uh, Colonel Jack Schwartz and, uh, and uh, Commander Kerry Smith uh, to pick the, the sickest and wounded prisoners of war to go. Well, this is where it gets conflicting. You know, the Japanese state, there were 15. Yep. Colonel Schwartz, in his immediate post-war deposition, states there were a dozen. Um, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but I never could get the numbers to reconcile until I'd actually read uh, these, re- these uh, exhumation reports. Well, anyway, they load these men on a truck. They take them to this Campo Santo de San Fernando Cemetery where the Japanese had already been twice that day uh, to bury again, you know, Colonel Harper and or Colonel, Colonel Harper and Commander Liddick and, and the other four men that, that passed away um, while they were waiting for the, the San Fernando train to get there to take them to Lingayan. Well, um, they decided to execute these men and they led them one by one from the truck to the, the grave. They started the soldiers had dug the grave and Toshino ordered Master Sergeant Tanawi to uh, decapitate him. So they would lead them one by one to uh, the edge of the grave. And, of course, the men were not in very good shape. Uh, you know, some of the men had broken arms, broken legs, and, and just and they would put them on the edge of the grave. And, and uh, while Tanawi would cap- decapitate him, uh, the guards, Jiro uh, Ueda and uh, Kazutuni Gaihara, there's that name again, Air Raid, would uh, ban him. And they did this with uh, all of the all of the men that were chosen by the American doctors, and uh, they were covered up and and left there. But the problem is, they left a witness. Yep. They left a witness, and that witness was the caretaker of the cemetery, who, after the war in in, the, in Toshino's war crimes trial, um, was was a pretty pretty reliable source, pretty reliable primary source to what happened over those five days in San Fernando. And, and I've got a picture there. San Fernando is not that big a town. Um, but if something happens there, everybody's going to know about it. So, all right. Well, the men then took um, a train from the San Fernando rail station, you know, the same one that the Tan Death March guys went through, yeah. uh, to San Fernando La Union, in, which is on the northern end of Luzon, um, on the beach up there. And they waited for uh, the next ship, which uh, the next two ships actually being the Nora Maru and uh, the Brazil Maru. Uh, so uh, Christmas, day after Christmas, uh, the rest of the men 
uh, boarded those two ships. The, I think there was 1,100 aboard the Anor Maroon, 250 aboard the Brazil Maroon. They uh, proceeded to get underway to uh, Formosa, to uh, Takao Formosa, which is now Kaohsiung, Taiwan, yeah. uh, where they arrived on New Year's Day. And uh, the Brazil Maroon pulled up to the berth to uh, load cargo, and the Anor Maroon uh, was tied up to a sea buoy. On the 6th of uh, January, the men from the Brazil Maru, the 250 from the Brazil Maru, were moved back to the Anora Maru. And uh, I guess the Anora Maru was, was waiting to berth the load of cargo. Um, when the U.S. Navy found the ship on January 9th, uh, same squadron, VF, uh, VF-11 from the USS Hornet, same group of pilots that attacked the Oreo Maru, discovered the Anora Maru and, uh, in Takao. And I've got, a, I've got the strike photograph of that. I'll uh, bring it up. Here's the uh, combat camera footage, uh, again, from the USS Hornet VF-11 of uh, Takao Harbor uh, on January 9th. And, and the ships down here in this nest, uh, the outboard ship is, is the Anor Maru. And uh, we're thinking this is the Brazil Maru right okay. here. But uh, yeah, the, a lot of the... The Brazil Maru, the, the, the particular class of the Brazil Maru, she was a World War One standard freighter, which was a, a, a dead copy of the Aiden Maru British class. Uh, a lot of the older Japanese freighters uh, were very similar to uh, the British Aiden Maru class. Uh, they were built by the, they, that was one of the ways that the Japanese contributed to World War One, is that the Kawasaki shipyard uh, contributed ships, because the, you know, the Japanese were on our side in World War One. Well, they sell these ships left over and they use them in World War II. So, but here is uh, here is the strike photograph of the Anormaru. The ship has already been bombed. Let me get my high res here. And you can actually see the, the ship nest uh, of the uh the Kirishio Maru here and the uh Anormaru here. You can already see the, the bomb blast. This this killed about uh, they estimate approximately 350 American prisoners that were in that forward hole. Uh, well, uh, the Japanese pretty much left the prisoners alone for a day or so. Um, you know, they, they got some medics to come on board and spread some yerk. And now, breaking news from migraine sufferer Whoopi Goldberg about Nurtec ODT Remegipant 75 milligrams. I got big news. Now Nurtec ODT is the first and only medication proven to treat and prevent migraines. This is big time. Don't take if allergic to Nurtec ODT. The most common side effects were nausea, stomach pain, and indigestion. For important safety information, prescribing information, and patient information, visit Nurtec.com. Ask your doctor about Nurtec today. Nurtec, baby. Simplify your federal agency's technology procurement with Connection Public Sector Solutions. Connection's dedicated account managers, commitment to exceptional customer service, and extensive catalog of federal contracts make IT purchases quick, easy, and affordable. Turn your challenges into opportunities and get rid of your technology pain points with Connection today. Learn more about what's possible with Connection Public Sector Solutions at connection.com slash fedcontracts. Durham, but uh, that was about it. Well, they finally decided uh, the evening of the 11th to uh, get the bodies off the Anor Maru. And uh, they put together a 20-man detail of uh, reasonably healthy prisoners. Um, Ken Wheeler, uh, Jim Keane, Jack Heinzel are three of the ones I know about. And uh, their job was to, to get the bodies off the Anor Maru and bury them ashore. So over the next two days, that was their job. They uh, they assisted the, 
the Chinese laborers and, and getting these men off the Yonomaru, and they buried them ashore um, behind the inner harbor. Um, finally, on the evening of the 13th, the, the remaining men alive, there's about 940, uh, were put aboard the Brazil Maru, and they started to uh, get underway for Japan. And this uh, journey started on the 14th of January and lasted two weeks because the, the Brazil Maru was, was a very old and slow ship and uh, had stopped several times because uh, of engine breakdowns and uh, to tow other you know, damaged ships. And plus, she decided, the captain decided to, to stay out of the, the open water because of the, the submarine activity. So she hugged the Chinese coast. Yeah. Um, in fact, the captain wanted to bring the Brazil Maru. Uh, the captain of the Brazil Maru was the same captain of the Oriok Maru, Shin Kajiyama. Uh, he actually took over the Brazil Maru um, after, he was, after the Oriok Maru was sunk. So Kajiyama wanted to uh, pull into Shanghai because uh, there were 30 to 40 men dying per day on the, uh, on the Brazil Maroon. And uh, Lieutenant Toshino refused. He said the death rate's going down. That was his quote. Uh, so Kajiyama listed a, a formal protest with uh, Toshino uh, about January 20th, right off the coast of Shanghai. Well, um, the next nine days, they, they steamed toward Japan and uh, made a, a mad dash across the Sea of Japan to the Shimonoseki Straits, where the Brazil Maru actually made the pilot station uh, about the evening of January 28th. And uh, the next morning, she took her pilot and, and berthed at the Moji docks on the 29th. Between Formosa and Japan, they were bearing 30 to 40 men a day. Uh, they started, yeah, they started off with uh, around 960 men. When they arrived at the port of Mochi, Japan, which is on the northern end of Kyushu between the, the Shimonoseki Straits, uh, there were 581 bodies aboard. And out of those 960 that left Taiwan two weeks earlier, uh, only 547 were alive. So uh, these these 37 men were uh, were uh, were dead on arrival, and uh, they were. They were taken off the ship and cremated and uh, uh, entered uh, under Fukuoka number four. And for some reason, they ended up being, their remains ended up being buried at the uh, Commonwealth Cemetery in Yokohama, the Charnel House. Yeah, that's crazy why yeah. they took them so yeah. far away. Right. So that was the, that was the men that uh, arrived dead on, on the Rizomo route. Well, the rest of the men were divided into four groups. First group was the hospital group, 110 men, which my grandfather was was one of these 110 men uh, that were uh, wounded or, or too sick to move. And uh, they were immediately loaded on trucks and taken to the Kokoro Military Hospital. And uh, this is where my grandfather uh, met his end on February 4, 1945, five days after Brazil Maru docked. Um, after the war, uh, my grandmother was contacted by uh, three of the men who were there with him who actually survived. Out of the 110 men, only 34 survived. 110 men that went to the Kakura Military Hospital, only 34 men survived. So that's, that is the dysentery ward. The, the ward in the hospital was two wards. The ward in the back was the, for the wounded. And the ward in the front, you, know, you can see the toilet boxes were uh, for the dysentery patients. According to Art Beale, who was also at this hospital, he was he was wounded in the foot during the Orioka Maru bombing, is that only one prisoner survived the, the front ward, and that was a man named uh, Ed, Lieutenant Ed Koenig. And uh, then the, 
they were they were when the men died they were uh, they were documented the person doing the documentation was uh, lieutenant colonel uh, virgil mccollum who eventually you know, later would become the, one of the commanders of the uh Batan and Gregor society uh, but he was the, the officer who was documenting the, the deaths there and uh, that's indicated on my on my grandfather's idpf uh, the other two eyewitnesses to his death were a man named lieutenant george faulkner was uh, also in the, in the 19th bomb group, 93rd squadron. He was a B-17 pilot. His B-17 got destroyed on the ground, so unfortunately George made the Batan death march and all that kind of good stuff. And and the other was Jack Heinzel. Jack Heinzel was a pilot in the, the 93rd squadron. Not Jack, but um, John Lester, Major John Lester, who was in the 19th group, uh, 440th uh, in aviation support group. Uh, it was at uh, Del Monte with my grandfather, Del Monte Field, Mindanao. He was also in that hospital. So there's the death certificate signed by the Japanese doctor. Um, but uh, I have also had the two letters from uh, Lieutenant Faulkner and uh, Major Lester after the war. So, uh, and with this death certificate, it pretty much confirms uh, where, where he died. Yeah. Uh, February, yeah, Sunday, February fourth, uh, nineteen forty-five, at three o'clock in the morning. That's uh, that's the story, but it isn't in there. I mean, we can uh, we can go on with the. Uh, yeah, when when did they bring his remains back home? Uh, his remains uh, were brought home in February nineteen forty-eight, mm-hmm. and and are buried about twenty miles north of Rumson. In fact, I even, I'm I'm living in his house. This is the house. The house I'm living in now is the house that he and my grandmother built. I. Uh, Inherited it from my dad last year and decided instead of selling it to go ahead and just fix it up. So I spent eight months fixing it up, oh, nice. making, it, making it at home for my wife and son. So exactly. Yeah. So these other, these other ones that were, when we, we'll, we'll go back to the, the to the uh, tennis courts and stuff. Okay. Now, how many, how many were killed there? Uh, that, they, that were actually, they, they estimate that between eight and 14, I've got it up here a piece of paper in, in William Hogaboom's IDPF that says uh, 14. But Jim Erickson's roster, uh, based on other sources that I have, war crimes depositions, um, statements from uh, Colonel Beecher, uh, indicate eight. Eight was kind of the, the number everybody agreed on, and that's what I can pretty much reconcile um, as, as firm based on you know the diaries and statements is that eight men died on the tennis court and were buried about uh, between 40 and 80 yards due south of the tennis court towards the uh, Subic Bay seawall. And that's another interesting story. As uh, 1947, they were doing some infrastructure work at the base. They were digging a water line um, just south of uh, where the old tennis court was, and they discovered five bodies. They discovered five sets of remains. Uh, of course, you know, these remains didn't have any identification on them. Uh, they'd been in the Filipino soil for two years. And uh, the the, uh, the Manila Mausoleum, the, the Graves Registration Unit, was not able to ID them positively. Right. Uh, but it's you know, it's pretty clear that these guys were, you know, some of those Oriokum were casualties because of where they were buried. Um, I've got a picture here that uh, a friend of mine sent me, uh, Chad Hill, who's, who's, who's the tennis court is his thing. Yeah, he's a good researcher. Chad, I've met Chad in Washington, and we've we've come through files together. I, uh, he's he's really good, but I'll uh, I'll find that picture he sent me, which uh, indi- 
shows the uh, the Graves registration team. In 1947, um, finding those bodies, and Chad actually documented. Um, oh yeah, yeah. These are these are the Sergeant Horace Allison's grave registration team from the Manila Mausoleum, uh, exhuming those five bodies. And you can see in the background. There's the end of the Civic Bay seawall. And uh, there's the road. You can actually see both of these landmarks in the, the splash photograph. I'll bring the splash photograph up again. Bring the high res up and zoom in. You can actually see um, there's the tennis court. You yeah. can actually see the end of the Subic Bay Seawall right here. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, right there's the end of the Subic Bay Seawall, and there's the, there's the road uh, that uh, the back of that picture is is indicating. So. So he's Chad was pretty much spot on there, and uh, those those um, those X files are X fourteen seventy nine, fourteen eighty, fourteen eighty one, fourteen eighty two, fourteen eighty six, and fourteen eighty seven. Uh, Manila mausoleum. Um, so they're buried, still buried as unknowns in uh, in Manila, and we know who they are. Yeah, Aaron Jim Jimison's in the. Chat there. He he's a uh, Navy veteran, and he he was in super or Benedict super. Oh, yeah. He made yeah. a comment there that the base did not change much from forty one to the late eighties. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, that tennis court was actually used as a parking lot for the BOQ. Okay. Yeah. The, the, if if you say the BOQ, that the parking lot was the old tennis court. I think the Legenda Hotel is on top of the tennis court right now. If, if my uh, my Google Earth uh, serves me well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then the and then the guys that, that died over there at the at the cockpit or what I call right. Them. Those guys um in San Fernando Pampanga, um, that was after the move from the tennis court. Um they were all again taken to San Fernando uh, Pampanga and, and buried in that uh, cemetery. Well they exhumed those graves after the war and they were I think out of the eighteen bodies they found they were only able to identify ten and I think there was a mis ID. Yeah. So we didn't pull the uh, American Graves registration reports and the quartermaster reports from that exhumation. And then you have to actually take it from the exhumation to uh, they give them an initial X number. You know, back then it was San Fernando X one through whatever, and then it went to United States Air Force uh, Cemetery, uh, an AGRS unit there in Manila, where they were given different X numbers. Uh, X I think it's four twenty two through whatever. And then they opened the Manila mausoleum where all these remains were sent then and given new X numbers. That's crazy. Like, it's, it's nuts. It's X8, 890, 891. And you have to follow this chain of evidence all the way until uh, the investigation was closed in 1953, which they reverted to their old X number. Exactly. Of what it was before they were sent to the Manila mausoleum. And, the war crimes trial by then was over, so the discovery evidence of who these men were was pretty clear. But again, I guess the you know, the information was restricted, and there wasn't a real good two way communication between uh, the Graves registration people in Manila and uh, the war crimes trial in Yokohama. Yeah. As if uh, I have a you know, this is just my theory. If those two would have been communicating, uh, those those ten minutes, San Fernando would have been ID'd. Exactly. Some of them were. Um, uh, Marine Colonel Freeney was ID. Um, 
Who else? Um, Dr. Uh, Melvin Swanson was ID. There's, I think there were eight total, but uh, there was 10 that, were, that are still MIA. And the, go ahead. You had you'd, you'd researched one of them. You had kind of a real interesting right. story. Right. There's this one um, young second lieutenant who uh, was executed. He was beheaded by the Japanese who you know, just, you know, for some reason, just, I wonder what his story was. He had a you know, foreign sounding name. And uh, I, I grew up in a town here in Galveston where there were a lot of Eastern European Jews, very, very tight, very tight community. Uh, and I was, and I grew up with their children. So, you know, me, me, the Episcopalian, uh, all my friends growing up are Jewish. So I would go to their houses for Hanukkah and, and, you know, the, the traditions. And, and so when I read his name, you know, the first name Hyman, that's, that's a very Hebrew name. That's a very, you know, very um, Jewish name. So I said, no, I'm going to check this kid out. And I tried for years to track down Hyman Victor Sherman. And you know how many Hyman Victor Shermans there were in New York? Because everybody changed their name. All the other Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe changed their name. So trying to find this one uh, Hyman Victor Sherman just was, was elusive. And it actually came to fruition about six months ago. I've got a good friend and his wife, uh, Dr. Bill Sherman, and we were sitting around the campfire, you know, having dinner and all that. And, and Bill's Jewish. And I said, you know, Bill, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to throw a Hail Mary here. I'm looking for the family of a guy named Hyman Victor Sherman, who uh, was a Jewish kid from New York. Uh, and he said, well, I have a, a family historian who can start digging for you. And then, of course, the gate opened up. Uh, the family historian got back to me. He said, well, he wasn't always Hyman Victor Sherman. His real name was Hyman Susi, S-O-U-S-S-I. And then the story got even more interesting. Uh, Hyman Susi and his family, uh, uh, he was born in Smyrna, Turkey. Prior to World War I and during the Ottoman Empire, uh, that Anatolia region of Asia Minor uh, had pretty significant populations of uh, Greeks, uh, a lot of them the Greek Orthodox, and a very, very tiny uh, Greek Jewish community called uh, the Janinas. Well, you know, Young Hyman and his family uh, were part of that community. Well, as, as World War I wound down and, and the uh, power vacuum of the Ottoman Empire collapsed, uh, you start to see the rise of the Turkish nationalists. Uh, they wanted Asia Minor to be theirs, and, and, uh, and then you know, the, the old colonial powers of England, France, and you know, not, not as much the United States, uh, were divvying up that part of the world, and uh, two separate treaties were negotiated separately because Versailles couldn't um, couldn't decide what to do with the region. So uh, the Turks signed you know, separate treaties with the French and the British, and uh, it ended up that uh, that part of Asia, not Asia Minor, uh, the Greek minorities had to leave. Yep, and they were they were there. Well, I mean, in 1919, the, the Greeks actually invaded that part of the world, thinking it was theirs. And of course, the Turks protested. By by 1921, the Turks were on the offensive. The Turks were pushing them out. So uh, young Hyman and his family, it was grandma, mom, dad, uh, two sisters, and Hyman, uh, made their way to Marseille, France. Yep. I don't yep. know how they, that's, that's the big thing. I don't know how they got there, but. Uh, well, apparently that, that, that group of uh, Jewish, that Jewish community was actually mm -hmm. under the protection of, of the French. Oh, really? So that means they went on, 
that means they went on the Fabray line because Fabray line was the, the line that operated out of that region. Correct. And, uh, they were processed in Marseille. And in July of 1921, they boarded a, a Fabray ship called the Roma and uh, landed in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I've got the landing report of the whole family. Uh, he entered the United States as Victor Sherman. I guess he wanted to sound a little more uh, anglicized, but uh, it, was, it was the grandmother, uh, his father, Samuel, his mother, Anna, uh, his sister, Suzanne, uh, the other sister, Sarah, and of course, you know, Hyman. Yep. And they settled in Brooklyn, New York. They uh, left Providence and, and settled in the Bronx, actually. And uh, the, the next reading I have of, of Lieutenant Sherman was he was a uh, high school student at DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx. And uh, that's where he graduated from high school in 1930. Uh, then I found his uh, petition for naturalization in uh, 1932. This is where we start to see the name Hyman Victor Sherman. He actually changed his name on his naturalization papers uh, from Hyman Susi or from Victor Susi to Hyman Victor Sherman. Um, and what's interesting is his sisters, um, Sarah and uh, Suzanne, also changed their first and last name. Sarah became, um, um, Suzanne actually became um, Stella or no, Estelle. Estelle and, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then the other sister changed her name. I'm not clear. I don't have my notes in front of me. I don't uh, know. But when, yeah. <laughs> well, when they, uh, when they were naturalized uh, Americans, they became uh, American citizens. They, they changed both their first and their last name to Estelle and uh, Suzanne Sherman. Uh, their father actually died in, in the Bronx in 1931, and this is where I figured out, um, because the, the Society for the Janina, which, which is the Greek Jewish uh, community, buried their father in Mount Carmel Cemetery in, in Brooklyn. So I traced the synagogue. Uh, they attended a synagogue in Manhattan, uh, the Janina community, very, very small uh, Jewish, Greek Jewish community. Um, but their synagogue is still there in, in Manhattan. And uh, this is where young Hyman and his family actually attended worship. Well, about an, I've got about an eight-year gap there uh, in his life until he shows up at Fort Ord, California in 1940. And it wasn't just Hyman that showed up out there. It was the whole family. The whole family um, All migrated to Los Angeles while I guess he was doing his military service. Well, at some point... Uh, in 1940, 1941, uh, Hyman again is an enlisted man and is sent to the Philippines where he is attached to the uh, 53rd Infantry Regiment of the Philippine Army. Well, of course, you know, the, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and uh, somehow young, uh, young Sergeant Sherman is now Second Lieutenant Hyman Sherman. Yeah, Battlefield promoted. The uh, Battlefield promoted him. Well, of course, you know, the the 53rd Infantry uh, surrendered at Marybells, and uh, Lieutenant Sherman made the Bataan Death March, ended up at O'Donnell and uh, Cabana Tuan, and uh, found himself uh, in 1944, in December 1944, in the rear hold of the Orioka Maru. He uh, boarded the ship about five or six ranks behind my grandfather, uh, so they were in the same vicinity. And uh, during that bombing, the Orioka Maru, um, I've seen reports that Lieutenant Sherman was wounded. So. He did get off the ship, uh, he made it to the tennis court, but uh, by the time they got to San Fernando, he was in pretty bad shape. And, and uh, you know, this poor Jewish kid, Greek Jewish kid from Turkey, who uh, pretty much kicked out of every place in his life. I haven't really woken up. 
until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's, I'm loving it. Uh, met his death at the end of the sword of Master Sergeant uh, Sukatoshi Tanawi. And uh, uh, after the war, uh, they had a preliminary ID of uh, Lieutenant Sherman as X-425, but that ID was rejected by uh, order review because of a discrepancy in the tooth chart. Which weren't uh, very accurate anyway. No, they weren't very accurate. I mean, this, this two chart was taken in 1940 at Fort Ord, and of course, it, you know, after three years as a POW and then getting your head chopped off, you know, things are going to change. So yeah, they actually had Dennett's Dennett's or Kabad Tuan where he was at. Right, they did. There was a there was a uh, Dr. Roy Bodine was was the dentist there at uh, Cabana Tuan, and he had, he has a journal out there too called. Uh, uh, he wrote a he wrote a he wrote a diary. I've got a copy of it. I can. Well, like me, I can't remember. I got so much on my brain about the Oregon right now. I can't remember all the diaries' names. But Dr. Roy Bodine, uh, who was actually Colonel Roy, Bo- Roy Bodine, he died in San Antonio about uh, 15 years ago. Um, he wrote a very good diary where he he goes over the incidents of, of San Fernando. All right, so uh, you know, poor Lieutenant Sherman is is now X four twenty five for the rest of up until now. When this you know this history teacher from Galveston, Texas, starts digging into his life, and uh, then gets put on a podcast. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, <laughs> Lieutenant Sherman's family um, will push and bring him home. Because uh, if there's a kid that needs to be brought home, if there's somebody that needs some redemption, it's it's this poor kid from Turkey that uh, is pretty much getting run out of every place he lived and just wanted to have a life for himself and his family. Exactly. But the, the sad part about it is he's, yeah. he's buried as an unknown at the Manila American he's, city. He's buried as an unknown. And like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll bet my, I'll bet my headphones here that T is X four twenty five. I agree with you too. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and the sadder thing about it too is, is a, is, is a Jewish Jew, Jewish service member being buried under a Latin cross. Yeah. Well, I, um, I work with a, uh, a Catholic priest who um, is very, very close to actually an Orthodox priest who is very close with the Jewish community in town and has, has contact with the rabbi. So uh, I don't know if um, Lieutenant Sherman has, has had the at the death prayers or not, but we're going to make arrangements to do it, the three of us, um, in his honor with, with, with Rabbi Cohen. So well, get that's, the least, that's the least I can do. If I can't get him, if I can't get him ID, at least I can. Uh, this, this research will bring some awareness. And, and I think his family, uh, from the last reading I got, I think his family uh, is in either Washington State or California. And, uh, and uh, they've, uh, they've been contacted by the U.S. Army Personnel Office, as have I. So, and I think that's um, because of the Enora Maru, they're trying to, to uh, eliminate uh, possibles on the Enora Maru. I don't know why they sent me a spit kit. But uh, I mean, I provided the death certificate and the and the three positive, uh, the three eyewitness accounts, and they still wanted it. So <laughs> they, just, they just wanted your DNA to see if you, yeah, if they were. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty clear. I mean, if you look at my grandfather's picture and look at me, I think there's uh, there's not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot of deaths there. 
you just spent a lot of time digging into their little kingdom, so they wanted to find out exactly. I, I am I am so deep into their dungeon; it's pitiful. Twenty three years of digging into their kingdom. So yeah, that's one of the questions Aaron had. How long did it take to un- uncover the whole story about your grandfather? Twenty three years, and I'm still working on it. Still working on it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, the, my grandfather's part, I pretty much put it to bed. Um, well, not really, because I keep getting stuff on it. Uh, the 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 in earnest, um, the in earnest effort started uh, with my first uh, trip to the uh, reunion of the Botanic Regular Veterans in 1997 in, in Louisville, Kentucky. This is where I met Art Beale, who was the Oracle Maru Point person. Uh, Art took me in like I was his son. I mean, we had dinner every night. We had lots of long conversations. Art passed away in in 2013. Uh, that hurt because uh, he and I. Uh, Became very, very close friends over, over a 15-year time period, and Art was in the Moji Hospital as well. He was in the he was in the uh, he was in the wounded side, so he and my grandfather were um, not very far apart. Um, but the greatest thing I can say about Art is uh, with the Botanic Corridor reunion in San Antonio in 1999, uh, I got to go to the Alamo with him. So here's a here's a guy that. Uh, was on Corregidor and I'm walking through the, the chapel at the Alamo with him. And it just was kind of surreal. And then that night was, was the big banquet. Um, and I found myself sitting at a table with art uh, and five other Oreo Camaro survivors, Jack Heinzel, uh, Gunnar Farrell, who was also in the Moji hospital, one of the survivors, uh, Maynard Booth, who ended up at uh, Fukuoka number three and uh, Ed Koenig, he was also in Emoji Hospital. So I am uh, 25 years old. I'm sitting at a table with uh, men who were a witness to my grandfather's death. And it just kind of, it just kind of said, you know what? I got a job to do here and I don't know what it is, but I got one. <laughs> exactly. I, I got one and I, and I can't let it go. So then, you know, I, uh, that same reunion, then that same reunion, another uh, descendant shows up. And, and that descendant is Jim Erickson, uh, Professor Jim Erickson, who, uh, again, you know, for 23 years, he, he and I have uh, bounced ideas off of each other. And and the, and the cool thing about Jim is um, he showed me a list of, of men that his uh, father had written down at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco after he got home from the Philippines uh, while he was recovering. And on that list is my grandfather's name, Lieutenant Kelso. And um, fast forward to 2001, my grandmother passes away. And this is a topic that was never talked about in the open. So as we're uh, cleaning out our house or cleaning out uh, all the scrapbooks and everything, I I come across a scrapbook she had kept in the back of her closet about my grandfather, all the letters, all the POW postcards. And and, uh, in in that scrapbook is, is a small piece of manila paper that says Major Albert Erickson, Spearfish, South Dakota, has information for you. So apparently Jim's dad had contacted my grandmother after the war, and they spoke, and here you know, we are 55 years later. Uh, they're his child and, and Lieutenant Kelso's grandchild connect at the uh, American Defenders of Botanic Corridor reunion at a table full of Orioka Maru survivors in 1999. Yeah. So... So after that, you know, I, I made frequent trips to the archives and, you know, copied just about the entire uh, record group 331 war crimes trial. 
on on the Oreo of Maru. And and at various times, you know, when I when I would have some downtime from my career and, and raising my son, I would, I would pull the files out and go over them, and, you know, make jacket notes of you know who died here and, and whatever. And then I really started going over. I had a friend of mine who was an attorney who was in law school actually at the time, and I said, "Well, we'll take a look at this." I showed him the specifications from the the Toshino war crimes trial, and it's amazing what you see when you get a second set of eyes look at something. It wasn't the Oriok Maru um, incident itself that got Lieutenant Toshino convicted. It was two events. It was one that he shot a prisoner aboard the Oriok Maru, Lieutenant William Brewster, uh, while he caught him in the galley. And the second was the San Fernando executions. Yep. Those were the two events that actually uh, sent Toshino to the gallows. And rightfully so. So, um, you know, fast forward, I guess, to 2014, you know, I pretty much put you know, my personal research to my grandfather to bed, but I'm always interested in it. I'm always interested in, you know, the different facts about the Oreo Camaro. Well, then I get uh, online to the, the creator form and, and pops up Chad Hill about the tennis court. And uh, the, the big brouhaha starts over the tennis court and these MIAs from the tennis court. So I you know, go out the, to, the, to the office and I grab my big tub of, you know, Rubbermaid tub of files and, and my wife's looking at me like going, you're really going to get back into that. I said, yeah, I got to. So I start going through the files and I start writing down names. Anyway, I contact Chad on this grade or forum and we start kicking stuff back and forth. And then, well, then it elevates into uh, San Fernando, you know, the, the MIAs at San Fernando. And then I start reading about John Eakin's lawsuit and you know what he had done with Cabana Tuan. And I said, you know, if, if he can do this with Cabana Tuan, we can do this with the tennis court in San Fernando. Exactly. Because these guys are just as MIA as the Cabana Tuan guys. And they got families just like the Cabana Tuan guys. Why don't we just go ahead and do this? So Chad and Jim and, of course, Jan Thompson from the, uh, the American Independence of Botanic Memorial Society. Jan's father was one of the men that helped carry my grandfather off the Brazil Maru. Uh, so Jan, Jan and Jim and I have become kind of like a little, you know, three musketeers. Uh, we've been, you know, very good friends. So, you know, why don't we start, uh, why don't we start trying to get these guys home too? We know who they are. Exactly. And, and this, in my opinion, is low hanging fruit. It is. It's easy, easy money or easy pickings, you know, for the DPAA to, to do right. that. And why they haven't, I have no idea. And and you know, those are the questions I had, and of course, you know, then the, the big brouhaha with the Mr. Eakins lawsuit, and you know, the the, the big shakeup at DPA or JPAC, which you know eventually became DPAA, and the the shifting around and the moving around, and of course, you know, the the USS Oklahoma IDs, and the and now they're going to go after the Enorma Maru because we they've hit the sixty percent threshold there. Um, and then of course they're doing the Cabana. So I think you told me they're doing the Cabana one. IDs in, in the Philippines. Yeah, it's over. Well, I, I haven't gotten confirmation on this last one. Okay. Right at this point, it's looking about 127. Right. I, know that, I know there's over 900 unknowns from Cabanatuan. Correct. Am I right? Yeah. But the problem with, with the Cabanatuan ones, they were all misidentified to begin. Yeah. The ones they identified originally were actually misidentified and sent, sent sure. back to the States. So you're, yeah. we're talking a couple thousand. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, and again, again, you know, the, you know what we talked about before. The the guy who uh, documented all the Cabanet one deaths uh, also documented the Oreo Camarudas, uh, Captain Robert Kahn. Yep. 
if, if there's a hero in all of this, it's it's Captain Robert Khan. Yeah, he 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 definitely deserved at least the Distinguished Service Corps. Oh, yeah, yeah, DSC at least. Yeah. You know, and uh, they just. I don't know if he ever got it. I, I saw him. I've got a picture of him in his uniform um, after he came home. I didn't see a DSC or I saw a Silver Star, but. Yeah. But I don't think he was ever decorated for you know the efforts at Cabana Tuan and the Orioka Maroon. Uh, oh, I wasn't and, just with all the POW, yeah, people, right. You know, Tobias was, Rose and, right. and all that he was responsible for yeah. figuring out. And, uh, and it's it's just unreal uh, what a lot of what a lot of families owe him, and hopefully uh, hopefully we make it right one day. I've I've asked my congress i've said something to my congressman about it and wants me to write a letter and all that kind of good stuff and so i'm gonna try to push to get uh con posthumously uh, decorated up i know his daughter i made contact with his daughter she she prefers to stay private and that's fine i'm gonna respect that oh, yeah. um, but you know she and i email back and forth and i let her know what's going on with the cabana to line ids and she has she has conveyed her pleasure uh, about what's going on with the Cabana to I-90s and the, and the efforts of you and, and John Eakin and Chad and me and Jim Erickson. And she's just overwhelmed with the, the fact that, you know, 70 years later, her father's work is, is doing a lot of good. His Her father's work is paying off dividends, you know, and, and yeah. it's bringing a lot of closure to a lot of families that, that, yes. that uh, were basically just buried under the ground is unknown. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's unacceptable in my mind. That's, to put it in, in kinder terms. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah as, as, as a family, as one of those families, uh, I, I put myself in the position of what happened if one of those unknowns was my grandfather. I'd be screaming from the rooftop. Yep. And um, I, I can empathize with them, and, and I'm with them. I'm with them 100%, and I know you are too. You, you were telling me you had an uncle who's Yes. Yeah. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all, we're all family here. You know? Yeah, we are. And, uh, we got to scream from the rooftops to get them to, to act. And, and of course what John has done, what you're doing. And, and there's a bunch of us out there doing this. Um, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think it's, it's a, it's a noble cause to it make this happen. But the, you know, it shouldn't be such a struggle with, you it know, shouldn't, it should work with the dpa to get them to do these identifications you know it's like when when john in this last lawsuit you know when they were mm-hmm. trying to get uh, lieutenant alexander ninninger identified mm-hmm. and some others uh the dpaa lawyers the, the federal lawyers told told the families that, that uh, the families don't have a constitutional right to have to make them identify these men so well, i think there's a i think there's a law and a charter there that says they do well, they've got a mandate by Congress. That's for sure. Yeah, but, there's definitely a congressional mandate. I think that's what they call a law. Yeah. Well, so. <laughs> yeah. They told the federal judge the families don't have a constitutional yeah. right to make them. <laughs> any any lawyer ought to know what a law is. Exactly. <laughs> so. Well, anyway, well that was that that works was, out. And um, um, I appreciate you sharing about your your. Um, I'm glad this is fun. I like to. I like to. I like to bring awareness of the of the issue that there's still thirty, almost what thirty seven hundred unknowns over Manila right now. And that's just Manila. That's Manila. That wasn't the just Manila. No. The punch bowl. Right, and there's there's the Anaramaru guys in the punch bowl, and yep. that's uh, and and a lot of people don't realize that the the DNA technology 
the advancement of DNA technology because of 9 11, you know, ID in those, those bodies in New York uh, is. We just, need to get, we just need to get the DPAA to use that technology. Exactly. So using all this, this, right. this is technology. This is technology that was uh, invented just to ID those people in New York. Um, and it, it works. I mean, look, look at all the IDs they're making from the, the World Trade Center. If we could approach the, you know, the, the tenacity of bringing our men home from World War II and Vietnam and Korea and, and the other wars, the way uh, they approached the, the tenacity of the 9-11 cases, uh, this, this, this would be put to bed pretty darn quick. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, sir, I appreciate it. Um, John, thank you for having me. I really do. This is this has been wonderful. Uh, the twenty three year journey uh, uh, to try to tell the story in a couple hours, but uh, yeah, it is. It's you have to skim over a lot of information that goes into. <laughs> I guess I'm gonna we're gonna get off the podcast. I'm like, damn, I said said that to him or something else. But I'll stay in touch. I'll definitely stay in touch. We might be able to do a follow up on just the San Fernando or the the tennis court. And, and and the thing that I want it, the, you know, the listeners to really bring away from this is, mm-hmm. is that they, you know, what they went through during the battle of the town right. mm-hmm. or in the Philippines, you know, right after December 7th. Sure. And then, uh, you know, being POWs for right. however many years, you know, until 1944 when yeah. they were put on the hell ships, right. uh, their condition, just their condition alone. Sure. By the, that they even got on those hell ships and what they went through in the holes of those ships getting bombed by and torpedoed by our own navy and and uh, yeah. how any uh, of them yeah. made it even japan it's, it's amazing it, it, it is amazing it's yeah. amazing they survived that long you know and and then and then you get to lieutenant sherman's story where you know, he was kicked out of his home at age seven after world war one and you know his family was having to run for their lives and he decides to serve his new country and then gets sent over to the Philippines. And, and this happens to him over there. And, uh, yeah. The poor kid can't get a break. And, and again, I hope, uh, I hope his, uh, his two sisters have since dead, but I know he has a nephew out there and I hope his nephew will, uh, will do the right thing here. Yeah. His, he's got a nephew and a niece. I, I looked mm-hmm. them both yeah. today. So. I, I I know, like I said, I know the U.S. Army personnel commands been in, in contact with them, and I and I hope that I know they're going to do the right thing. But I hope DPAA does the right thing here because it's pretty clear that Lieutenant Sherman is X four twenty five. Exactly. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much for John. This, is, this has been wonderful. Thank you for listening to Stories of Sacrifice: World War II American POW MIAs in the Philippines. This has been a production of the USPOW-MIA Family Locating. You can find us on the web at USPOW-MIAFamilyLocating.com. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and given in the best intention. Overall, the POW-MIA accounting community is doing what it can with limited resources. It is our hope additional federal funding will be provided along with additional partnerships established to disinter and process the remains of our own loans located in the national cemeteries. You can help by contacting your congressional representatives and asking that they implement a DNA lead policy for those unknown POW MIAs. Thank you for listening.
plan to spice up the NFL season was to add man-eating tigers to the game. <laughs> we lost a lot of great players that day, and, and that was my bad. Now I'm bringing you the Caesars Sportsbook app. It's got live in-game betting, parlays, and Caesars rewards, people. It's even better than Tiger Ball. Must be 18. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. As a social worker, you can become an advocate for those who can't. Earn your master's in social work degree online to learn strategies to connect diverse populations with the critical resources they need to improve their well-being, whether it's in a hospital, community service agency, or another setting. What do you think making a difference as a social worker looks like? GCU offers over 240 high-quality online programs like this one. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.